Morning, church. As we get started this morning, I have a couple of a uh, couple of things to remind you of. First of all, those of you who missed the announcement uh, period this morning, I just want to remind you that uh, we had a business meeting last Sunday and we voted a new budget. Copies of it are in the back. You can take a look at that. But the 31 folks who were here who decided what you're spending your money on, did not feel it was a large enough group to make the decisions they wanted to make that we were asking to make about whether we build a two-story building, the one you've seen the models of and all the, everything that we've been working up to this far and seen this far, or whether we reduce it to a single-story building. And the reason for redu- reduction would be cost. And with cost comes rapidity of getting started. So we have a new business meeting scheduled for the 10th of August. This is your first warning. Please write it down in your calendar. Please make sure that you come. We would like to have as great a representation of the church body as possible when we have that conversation. Okay? Second announcement. Uh, Many of you know that I have had two jobs for the last about five years. I have been... uh, as you know, still pastoring this church. I have also been working as the conference ministerial director, um, which gives me uh, the responsibility to pastor the uh, 155 pastors over 64,000 square miles of Northern California, which has been a little bit tougher to accomplish than pastoring this church. Um, Starting in... Starting the 1st of September, I will have only one job, and that will be pastoring this church. You clap now. Wait till I figure out what to do with the rest of that energy. Um, it was it was something that was really helpful at the time. You know that the economy really took a pretty serious crash, crash in 2008, and I picked up the, the reins of that job um, 2009-ish, and the conference was beginning to struggle financially, and um, there actually every member of the staff in the conference office, every director, and all the administrators took another job. So the director of evangelism took the Stockton Church for a year. Um, the, uh, well, actually, the director of the uh, community service already had four jobs, so we didn't add one to him. And he also worked for the Pacific Union at the same time. Um, the, the youth director became a youth pastor in the Orangevale Church. The um, conference, pa- conference president became the pastor of the Pacific Union College Church for a year. Our our conference secretary became the associate pastor of um, one of our Oakland churches. And that, that's just the way the list went. The purpose of that was to save salaries, to help to get through that period of time. And during that period of time, that savings helped us not to have to lay off any pastors or cut any wages. So now, thanks to you and the recovering economy, they can afford to buy somebody to play that job for, to pay that job for full, to pay for that job full time. Who speaks English? <laughs> <clears throat> so, 
starting in around the, around the beginning of September. It'll, there'll be a little bit of a flex there. I'll have some last projects to finish off, and uh, then I'll be uh, free this fall from the other job and be back on full-time, full-time here. Okay? Today we are going to be picking up um, a little commentary on this whole discussion of the kingdom. Last week we talked about a kingdom would sort of indicate that there must be a king. And we talked about the fact that Jesus declared himself the king of that kingdom. And he did it very pronouncedly. He did it very boldly, riding in on the donkey, going in and clearing the temple. The things he did were very specifically designed to demonstrate that he was the king, that he was in fact the king of this new kingdom. Excuse me. Today we're going to talk about the fact that a kingdom reflects the nature of the king. What empire does that building represent? The Roman Empire. How do you know that? Because it's in Rome. It's become an iconic building, though, isn't it? It's become an iconic representation of the, of the city of Rome and of the empire of Rome. Vespasian was the one who started it. Um, Vespasian was a king at the time when the, when, uh, the Jewish people began their revolts. In about, so figure around the 60s AD, when the revolts began to rise up, when the revolts in Israel began to rise up, Matthew is writing a document. And as the Israelis foment revolt and revolution, Matthew is writing a book. And in that book, he is talking about the kingdom of heaven. He is talking about God's kingdom and how that kingdom is different from anything you've ever seen before. And as he's writing that book, Vespasian, having come back from tamping out one of the first early rebellions in 66 AD, starts a building project. And he starts to build a massive Colosseum in the center of Rome. It was Vespasian's idea that if you kept the people happy and entertained, they wouldn't rebel against you. Maybe having been in, in Israel and, and seen what they were doing, he figured they didn't have enough entertainment in Israel. That's why they were getting into trouble. I'm not sure. But he decided that that's what he was going to do. He died before it was completed, and his son, Titus, who you might recognize, finishes the project. It took about eight years to build. Titus was the, was the uh, envoy of the emperor and the general in charge of putting down the revolt of Israel in 70 AD. And he finally did put down the revolt of the people of Israel. And he tore down the sanctuary brick by brick, or his soldiers did. And one of the things he built upon his return was not just the Colosseum, but he, actually his son built this arch in his honor. And on this arch, there's a picture of Titus carrying off the material goods of the sanctuary of Israel. And the most recognizable one is that big seven-sided candlestick. If you were to get up close to this, if you get a chance, do it. If you get a close-up look at this thing, there's a picture of a group of people carrying off the seven-sided candlestick from the sanctuary. from, From the picture, it looks like it's about four feet tall, maybe five feet tall, that they're carrying away. These guys represent their kingdom, its authority its power, and its nature. The empire of Rome 
exhaust, or pressed its power forward on its people, expressed that power militarily, and heaven forbid that you revolt against them. They were going to come down on you hard. And they were going to stay on you until they won the victory. These men built these buildings. These men represented their kingdom and its nature. They were warlike generals who took over the authority of Rome. It's interesting that while Matthew is writing about the kingdom of heaven, he's observing the kingdom of Rome. While Matthew is talking about what is different about God, he's observing this. He's observing this family. He's observing their actions. Jesus, on the other hand, has a completely different icon of the kingdom. If you look around the world, it takes a lot of different shapes. Sometimes it's hanging around somebody's neck. Sometimes it's in a building. Sometimes it's on the outside. Sometimes it's on the inside. I've seen them hanging from mirrors. But the icon of the Christian church is the cross, which in the Roman Empire doesn't make any sense at all. It would be like the icon of a church being a hangman's noose or the icon of a church being an electric chair. It just doesn't make any sense because this is the symbol of capital punishment to the Romans. And it became the symbol of the sacrifice of Jesus to the church. Empty in most Christian, most Protestant churches to demonstrate that in fact he doesn't stay there anymore. That he didn't just die for our sins, but he was raised fresh as the promise of eternity. And the iconic symbol of Christianity in Christ is a cross. The kingdom reflects the nature of the king. You got it? Would you read that with me? The kingdom reflects the nature of of the king. That's what's been said over and over again by Matthew. Look at this. Look how this kingdom is different. Look at this. Look how this kingdom is different. It's different in this way. It's different in that way. It's different in the other way. Hey, look at the Romans. Well, they're not what we're talking about. This is the kingdom we're talking about. The Jewish people are in revolt and they want to establish a strong political and military kingdom. And he's saying, no, no, no. Jesus' kingdom is different. It's just different, you guys. It's completely different from anything you saw. And they had no way of knowing that the that the the tool that Jesus would be sacrificed on would in fact become the iconic symbol of the Christian church. They had no way of knowing. It was a broken-hearted thing that had them facing the cross. But over time, the cross stopped representing their heartbreak and started representing their hope. And it stands on the top of many Christian churches. It stands as the symbol that everyone in the world recognizes as a symbol for Christianity. So I want to talk through a particular passage of time, a particular set of incidents in the establishment of this kingdom and the confusion that Jesus brought. So the kingdom is announced. Now, I wanted, you know what I wanted to put here? I wanted a picture of Prince Ali because I wanted to make sure the kids were with me here. Yeah, Prince Ali, handsome as he, Ali Ababa, that guy. Strongest ten regular men. You following along, kids? Okay, why are the adults following along? 
But I just decided it was kind of out of place after the last comment. I, I sneaked it in anyway. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, start out with this comment. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist is this guy who walks in out of the desert. He literally just shows up one day, and he's wearing camel hair clothes. Okay? And we're not talking the spiffy camel hair jacket and tie camel hair. This is the itchy wool made from the fur of camels camel hair. He's wearing camel hair. And it's so weird that people all around report, oh, look, he's wearing camel hair. That's like wearing a torture item. Why would you wear that? But he's wearing camel hair clothes. And as he shows up, he's just this odd-looking guy. And they even mention his diet. Remember what he eats? Locusts and wild honey. Now, you can eat those locusts. You can eat crickets. Okay? They're even on the clean food list if you want to just go for it, if you're really looking for it. I told you about my fourth grade teacher and her penchant for bringing chocolate-covered insects to class. Crickets were on the menu. He ate locusts and wild honey. And there's still a division among the people who, who talk about John the Baptist as whether he ate bugs or he ate what in, the, in the, the language would be referred to more like carob. Now, honestly, I'd have a hard choice between those two. <laughs> Honesty is always good. Maybe if you dip the carob pod in the wild honey, it'll taste like the bug. Whatever he ate, everybody who looked at his diet said, this guy eats weird stuff. What's up with this guy? He shows up, he's dressed funny. And he shows up eating funny stuff. And people are, people are commenting not just on what he preaches, but on the way he looks and the way he acts. But he is the one who steps out and first says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Do you remember what repent means? We've been over this a lot. Repent means you are going this direction. You should turn around and go the other direction. Right? Because the bridge is out going that direction. There is no way to get to where you want to go going that direction. That direction ends up with you being lost. Turn around and go in the other direction. Walk with God in the way he wants to lead you. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? What do you take is at hand to me? It's coming right away. It's right around the corner. It's close by. Okay. It's close. If I said lunch is at hand, you would say, oh, good. It's about time to eat. Right. The kingdom of heaven is at hand means it's about to happen. He's about to come. The Pharisees and Sadducees Sadducees come to him for baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers. If somebody greeted you this way, would you stay? You walk into somebody's, you know, worship center. You walk in for this big ceremony that's going on. And the leader of the worship says, you brood of vipers. Stuff like this strikes me as odd in Scripture. It just sticks out with me. I just, I just wonder, what, what did they do? Did they stand up straighter? Did they just scowl at him? Did they know they, weren't, you know, they were too cool to, to, to flee at the words of some weirdly dressed, oddly breathed guy? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So what is John expecting as the coming of the kingdom? He's he's expecting wrath. What did the Jewish people expect would happen when the Messiah came? 
They expected he would come as a king, as a ruler who would throw out the Romans and reestablish Israel as a nation, right? John is no different. He's not separated from his culture so much that he doesn't understand pieces of that. And he's expecting that when the new king comes, when the new kingdom is, is, is mounted, he will come and in his trail he will bring judgment and wrath. Who has told you to flee from the wrath to come? And do not think and say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. Abraham won't protect you. Being Jewish won't protect you. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. So if you've come to the worship service that day and John's baptizing people there in the river and everybody's gathered around and they're singing, shall we gather at the river? And you break through and he interrupts the song and he says, you brood of vipers, who has told you to flee from the wrath to come? Don't you even try to claim Abraham as your protector. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. What are you, if you're chopping the roots on a tree, what are you doing to it? You're killing it. He is saying, man, the kingdom of heaven is coming and it's changing some things for you guys. Repent and be baptized. So you got a picture of John's approach? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your direction and be baptized. Okay. Indeed, uh, Jesus came. Did I miss a slide? No, I didn't. Jesus came to him and asked if he might be baptized one day. Same thing. He comes and there's a worship service going on. They're singing, shall we gather? And Jesus walks up. And now, it just, the music just kind of starts to fade. Because John has stopped singing. John's eyes are fixed on this guy who's approaching. And as he comes through the crowd, the people are looking at him. He's, he's dressed like a carpenter. He's got those rugged looking hands. He's, he's got his, his, his craftsman uh, uh, measuring stick in his back pocket. You never leave home without that. He smells a little bit of the shop and of wood. Maybe a little bit of the perspiration of his being a working man. And he walks up to John. And John immediately knows who he is. He knows because he's been sent to tell him he's coming. He's been sent to tell the world that Jesus is coming. And he just saw him come. Jesus comes up to John and he says, I indeed need you to baptize me with water. You know, I am, I am ahead of myself so completely. I'm skipping that slide. I'll just tell you the story. I have, some days it doesn't help. Okay, I'm going to finish my story. We might catch up with the slides later, and we might not. So Jesus comes to him and asks that he might be baptized. He walks in. John recognizes him immediately. Jesus says, I would like to be baptized by you. Do you remember what John says? He says, no, I need to be baptized by you. I need to be baptized by you. I'm not worthy to baptize you. Jesus said, let it be. And John baptizes him. Do you remember what happens next? He sees the Spirit descend on him like a dove. And the voice of the Father from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, if you're John, 
and you've seen that, would that be pretty convincing to you? You think, you think that would stick with you in your memory? You would kind of go, okay, I'm pretty sure about this Jesus guy, right? I'm pretty sure about him. I'm going to have to skip a couple of slides here. Jesus came from Galilee to John the Jordan to be baptized. When he was baptized, Jesus came up out of the water immediately, and there's proof that I didn't tell you something that wasn't true. Now, John went off to prison after this. When he went off to prison, Jesus left the region around the Jordan. The Bible says when John, when, or, and when John heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to him, are you the coming one, or should we look for another? Now, let's, let's back up the bus a little bit. Just a few months before, Jesus walks through the crowd. Shall we gather? Whoa! Baptize! Dove! This is my beloved son! John's convinced. You're convinced. And then John, after being taken to prison, becomes less convinced. Anything ever happened in your life that made you less convinced about God's activity in your life? Less convinced about God altogether? Less sure? You're going along merrily doing your thing. Everything seems to be going just fine. You're having a good time in life. Everything's working really well. And then all of a sudden, some tragedy hits you. You get the doctor's call. The doctor says, things are not going well for you. This and this and this and this are a problem. And you think, oh my goodness, is God really watching out after me? You're driving your car along the road, merrily going on your way to work, and all of a sudden somebody plows into you, destroys your car, puts you in the hospital, and you lay down in your hospital bed looking up at the ceiling, unable to do anything because they've just really messed you up. And you're laying there looking up there saying, where was God when I needed him? See, John has been thrown in prison. John didn't do anything but do what God told him, right? He was there on God's errand doing what God told him, and he said, God should take care of me if I'm doing what he wants me to do. And he gets thrown in prison. He's sitting in his prison cell, and he's starting to think about this guy he saw who came walking through the crowd one day, and the whole thing said, we, yeah, my son. And the memories are running through his head, and he's trying to figure it out. He's, I was really sure about this Jesus character. I was, I, I'm sure I saw the dove. I'm, I'm sure I heard the voice. Frank, Jim, come here. Yes? I need you to go see Jesus. I need you to go ask him a question for me. Okay, what is it? I need you to go ask him. Is he actually the Messiah? Or should we be looking for somebody else? Your faith and my faith can be rocked. Something can happen and we can be thrown in prison, sitting there with John, and we're questioning whether God is really on his throne. Your finances can crash. Your marriage can go to pot. You can get in some kind of problem. Some trouble can come your way that you had nothing to do with. And there you sit in that cold, dank cell, listening to the dripping of the water, embracing the freezing cold of the cement that's wrapping around you, saying, I don't know, I was really convinced. I was really sure. John sends his envoys. Are you the coming one, 
or should we look for another? The two guys go out to see Jesus. When they arrive, they speak to him. What has Jesus been doing in the meantime? Sometimes you get so confused, you just should look up before you speak. What has Jesus been doing in the meantime? Well, the Bible says, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, from the time of John's arrest, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was John's initial announcement? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The exact same words. Jesus begins to preach the exact same words, but he does it a little differently. Jesus went into Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching what? The gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. What had John said? You brutal vipers! Who told you to flee the wrath to come? Jesus goes into the synagogues and he says, I have good news for you. The kingdom is at hand. I have really good news for you. The kingdom is at hand. And he starts healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Is Jesus saying, you brood of vipers? No. He does get cranky with the Pharisees in a few chapters. He does tell them they're off track, way off track. But he doesn't seem to have the same emphasis John does, does he? Would that perhaps make John doubt? Will that perhaps make John question? You know, it's a funny thing in our world. If you preach about Jesus, people wonder if you're talking about Jesus. Did you know that? If you preach about Jesus, I, people will come up to you and ask you if you're telling them the truth about Jesus. You know what they usually say? You know, Pastor, you talk about Jesus all the time. Shouldn't we talk about something else? Shouldn't we be talking about, <clears throat> about <clears throat> the wrath to come? I have a good friend who has been told multiple times, you need to stop preaching about Jesus. I've only been told a handful of times that you need to stop pre- preaching about Jesus. Usually it follows with, you shouldn't you be preaching about the end of time and about the wrath to come and about what we, how we, what we have to do to get prepared? If you were ready to have that, that conversation with me, hold it. I'll give you my answer right now. Here's my answer. Who's coming? If I understand Scripture correctly, the big difference between ending up in heaven... And being lost is whether or not you've accepted Jesus. And you can know everything there is to know about the days of the end and what's supposed to happen and completely miss Jesus. So Jesus, I think, was disappointing to John in what he was preaching. John was the true hellfire and brimstone guy. You brood of vipers, who warned you? What are you doing here? 
Jesus goes about preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news about the kingdom. And while he's there, he's healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. There's not much in the way of wrath there, is there? He keeps saying, you're going to be blessed if this is the way your life goes. When John heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? They get to Jesus, and they ask him the question. And Jesus says to them, Go tell John the things which you what? Hear and see. We're going to skip over to Luke, because Luke's at this end of the story. At that very hour... He cured many of the infirmities and afflictions and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. So John's disciples walk up to Jesus and they say, are you the coming one or should we be looking for somebody else? And Jesus effectively says, just watch. Just watch. And he goes around healing all of these people who are present, healing their sicknesses and their infirmities. He casts out evil spirits. And he gives sight to the blind. Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Tell him the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He doesn't tell John, hey, John. You're offline here, buddy. You were kind of messed up from the beginning. You came out of the desert. You were all cranky. You were having to eat bad food and wear funky clothes. So it made you a little grumpy, and you were you were kind of crazy with the whole wrath thing. You got you were going too far. You know you you really he didn't do anything corrective for John. He didn't try to say, John, I don't appreciate what you've done. He said he didn't say, John, you didn't go about it right. He just said, Hey, John, here's what I'm doing. Does it align with what you believe the Messiah will do? Healing the sick. Raising the dead. Preaching the gospel to the poor. The kingdom reflects the nature of its king. The kingdom reflects the nature of its king. When you rolled into Rome in the first century, there was no missing the nature of Rome. It was big, it was bold, the Colosseum was in front of you, the triumphal arches were in front of you. Everything was really clear. Big, powerful, authoritative kingdom. We do what we want in the world because we can. When I was a kid, I heard the phrase, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. For I am the baddest dude in the valley. That's the Romans. That's the Romans. 
Don't mess with us. And Matthew starts writing his gospel. And he says, the kingdom of heaven isn't quite like that. Let me show you what Jesus said. Let me show you what Jesus did. Let me show you how he worked. The kingdom reflects the nature of the king. Last week we talked about submitting to his leadership. Letting him be king. What's the big question that the Bible is answering? The whole book, it only answers one question. Lots of different pictures of it. Lots of different facets of that answer. Lots of different ways. Lots of different experiences. But it only answers one question. The question the Bible is answering is, can God be trusted? Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, you can't trust God. You can't. He's lying to you about this stuff. You can't trust him. From Genesis 3 to Revelation chapter 22, the answer, the answer, the answer, the answer, the answer is, yes, he can be trusted. Yes, he can be trusted. Yes, he can be trusted. Last week, after church, after lunch, after a nap, I went and hung out with some of our young kids. They were having a pool party. And after they were worn out with the pool, or just because they were told they had to, they got out of the pool. And we talked a little bit about Revelation. And one of the things I love about talking to younger people is it forces you to rethink the way you say things. It forces you to try to, and try to grasp information that you're used to, to maybe conveying in different terms, and try to bring them in, into a to focus in a life of a 15-year-old or a 17-year-old, trying to make them make sense in that world. And one of the things that we talked about was this idea that the point of Revelation is the culmination of the answer to that story. The question starts in Genesis. The answer is all through the Bible, but it culminates in Revelation. And it's simply saying, yes, you can trust God. And here's our friend, John, sitting in his prison, What is he saying? What is he asking? What is he saying to Jesus? He's saying, are you really the guy? Can I really trust you? You don't seem to line up with what I expected. You're doing things differently than I had planned. What's the deal here? Are you really God? Can you really be trusted? Or should I be looking for somebody else? And Jesus doesn't say yes. I just want a yes. I, in fact, want Jesus to show up at the prison, look through the bars and say, I got this. You're good. Let's open the bars and let you out. That's what I want. I want him to show up when things are going messy in my life. Come in, clean up the mess. When things are difficult in my life, I want him to come in, straighten up all the problems. I just want a yes. I want it. Are you really God? Are you really busy in my life? Are you really active today? I want him to say yes, show up and fix it. He doesn't. Instead, he says to John, Okay, buddy, here's what I'm doing. Is that enough? Is that enough information for you? Will you rest on the evidence of the life that I'm demonstrating? Or will you not? You see, a kingdom is reflective of the nature of its king. Here's what I do. 
This is what I'm like. This is my nature. You know, you know all of these things that I'm doing for people, blessing them, helping them, doing what I can to make their life easier? That's normal for me. You know, what, you know what's described as abnormal for me? Abnormal is that last thing that you're all afraid of. The end of time, the last day of earth's history when sin is wiped out, is called God's strange act. It's not normal. It's abnormal. How does God answer the question, can he be trusted? Biographically. Some of you may know where I'm going to go. I hope you do. You're saved by grace through faith. Right? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You're saved by grace through faith. Your salvation comes to you by grace. The unmerited favor of God. The unmerited. What does unmerited mean? Without merit. It means you don't deserve it. Okay, unmerited favor of God through faith, the act of trusting in him. John is sitting in his prison. He hears the water dripping around him. He feels the cold of the prison embracing him. And he sends a couple of guys to talk to Jesus. And he says, hey, are you the one or should I look for somebody else? Jesus doesn't show up the prison, open the bars and let him out. He does that for Paul and Silas, but he doesn't do it for John. He doesn't let John out. He just says, John, would you believe the evidence? Would you believe what I've been doing? Your faith is about your trust. John's faith is about his trust. It's just simply the same word. It's just the idea of trusting in God. What's the first question? What's the only question the Bible's really answering? Can God be trusted? You're saved by grace, God's unmerited favor, by trusting Him. Hey, Adam and Eve, come check out this tree. Come, come look at this fruit. It's awesome. It's great. You'll love it. And oh, by the way, it has benefits that God's holding out on you. Try it. Reminds me of being on the playground in high school. Try it. they did they chose not to trust God and every day you and I face the same question you wake up in the morning your feet hit the floor and the list of things you should do shouldn't do did do didn't do starts to roll and you face the question of one frame or another can I trust God today and Jesus doesn't jump up in the window of your house stick his face up against the window and say, yes! He says, here's the things I've done. Here's what I did in the past. Here's what I've been doing in your life. Here's what I've done in the lives of the people around you. This is who I am. Will you believe that? Can God be trusted? Go and tell John the things you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. 
Here's what he does. Here's what he's like. Your life might be completely off the rails this morning. You're looking at your life and you're saying, I am so completely off the rails, God doesn't even know where I live. I have gone in the wrong direction for so long, I'm in a zip code that God doesn't even, isn't even aware of. There's no repentance from here. There's no going back from here. There's no changing my life from here. You know what God said to you? There were two sons. One of them went off to a far land and spent all of his father's wealth on prodigal living. And when he was in a pigsty feeding the pigs and wishing he could eat the locusts, he came to his senses and said, even my father's servants have food. I'll go home. And he heads for home. And while he was still a long way off, the king ran out the road and met him. He wrapped him in a robe that didn't stink. He gave him the ring of authority in the family. And he walked beside him, not embarrassed, not ashamed, not sad, joyfully, happily, all the way home. Can I be trusted? This is what I'm like. Can he be trusted? This is what he does. Can he be trusted? Have you seen Jesus' actions? Can he be trusted? Have you talked to your friends about what he does in their life? Can he be trusted? Have you ever seen anyone else who's had faith? Can he be trusted? Look around you. The question's being answered every single day. Can he be trusted in this incident? Yes. Will it come out the way I want it? Maybe not. But he can be trusted. I have come that you may have life. I died on the cross so that you had the choice to live and not die. I have come that you may have life. Not life squeezed out of the tube of this world we live in that slowly empties out until there's nothing left and then you're done. Not that. That's a a weird specter of a life built on a platform of sin. And the world is destroying everybody who holds on to that. Not that life. Eternal life. And that you might have it more abundantly. I've come that you might have life. Awesome life. Abundant life. Overflowing life. I've come that you might have more than you deserve life. I've come that you might have the best you can have here and far beyond. I've come that you might have life. Trust me. I've come that it might be abundant. Trust me. John, I know you're sitting in the prison and I know that that the thing is dripping with damp and I know that the cold is creeping into your bones and I know doubt is becoming part of your life, but you can trust me. Look at who I am. Look at what I've done. The testimonies are everywhere. What have you seen? The kingdom is a reflection of the nature of the king. Let me wrap it up this way. I have come that you might have life. 
Would you trust me for that? Would you trust me that I died on the cross for you specifically? Would you trust me for that? That's the question. Would you trust me? Can God be trusted? Can the God on the cross be trusted that he was doing that for you? Can he be trusted or can he not? That's, that's level one. That's Christianity 101. That's the base level. Will you or will you not trust that Jesus died for you specifically? So once you understand that my grace is for you, I am for you, that I'm covering you, that I'm going to walk you all the way back home. Once you understand grade level one, Jesus died for me specifically. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to take that? Are you ready to believe that? Some of you have been following in the paths of church and religion your whole life and you've never actually bought this. Trust death of Jesus on the cross was specific enough for you. No matter where you are, whether you're that kid who's off in the pigsty feeding the pigs, or you're the kid still at home standing outside saying, I don't want to go in, Dad, because I don't agree with what you do. You can trust that the cross was for you. Second, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Repent, turn around, and follow me to that life. See, the second half is, will you trust me enough to follow me home? Will you trust me enough to follow me home? All of the obedience discussions we have, all that stuff people load on you in the, in the voice of, of legalistic behavior that will manipulate God into making him save you, it's poppycock. It's simply this. You are covered by his grace, and he wants to know, will you follow him home? Will there be obedience along the way? Absolutely. But it's not obedience for the sake of obedience. not obedience for the sake of making God do anything. It's obedience because you're following somebody you trust home. That's all. You're following him home. He's walking you home. Home to a celebration. Home to a party. Home to his greatest joy. His kids coming home. Will you trust me that I've come that you might have life? And will you trust me that I know what an abundant life looks like and just follow me? It's Christianity. The crazy thing about it is as you start following him, discipleship begins to become the norm in your life and you begin to look like him and you begin to act like him. And you know what happens? You become the kingdom's expression and the nature of God and the nature of the king becomes expressed in your own life. And people say, you know, I don't know about Jesus. I don't know about the Bible. I don't know about the stuff I've read. I'm not sure about that. But my neighbor, man, if that's what it does to you, it's worth checking out. You see, Christianity for thousands of years has depended on, I believe that Jesus died for me, and I'm following him home. And as the followers get closer to home and hang out with God longer and longer, they start to look like him. And the nature of the follower begins to be like the nature of the king, and the kingdom gets feet. And the kingdom is you. And the expression of who God is 
comes out of you. Not because you've mustered up the strength to be or to do something. But because you followed him. And you just kept following him. And you just kept following him. And you just kept following him. And before you knew it, you were walking synchronously. And your steps were in line with his steps. And people started saying, hey, I know her. I recognize her. She's a follower of Jesus. I can tell. She looks like him. She acts like him. She sounds like him. And the skeptic says, I don't know about Jesus, but I know about my neighbor. And the wanderer says, I don't know where to go, but I'll follow you as you follow Jesus. The kingdom is a reflection of the nature of the king. The first question is, will you trust him? And the second question is, will you follow him? And I wish I could be in your head right now. Because I wish I knew whether I should stop or whether I should keep going until I'm sure. Because there is no reason for you to leave this room without the certainty that he died for you. There is no reason for you to leave this room without committing to at least take the first step toward home. Let's pray. Father, we we see ourselves in John. <clears throat> we see ourselves in that tormented state so often where we wonder if you can be trusted. We see ourselves looking through those bars, asking for more evidence. Thank you that you're willing to give us the evidence that overcomes our doubt. Thank you that you're willing to walk slowly when we're stumbling and to carry us when it's necessary. Father, as a group and as each individual today, we choose to believe that Jesus died for us. And we choose to follow you home. In your name, we thank you.